The Phaedo has to be acknowledged as one of the greatest works of European literature. Scarcely any other writing has influenced so many people through so many centuries. Even now, in the 21st century, when someone starts to talk of immortality and souls, oh, they are apt to be met with blank stares of incredulity. But the Phaedo remains a powerful and moving piece of writing. In many of the early dialogues, we face the problem of separating the historical Socrates from the Platonic caricature. With the Phaedo, this Socratic problem comes to a crisis. Burnett, in his introduction to the edition of the text and commentary, argues that because Phaedo, Simeus, Cabes, and others were still alive when the dialogue was written, the dialogue is not likely to be an imaginary conversation. While the details need not be pressed too hard for historical accuracy, we are certainly led to believe that it gives us a truthful record of the subjects on which Socrates discoursed on the last day of his life and of the manner of treating them. While I don't want to consider the Socratic problem in any detail here, I do want to stress the observation that this is a work of literature, a work of art. Recall the career to which Plato aspired before he met Socrates. He had prepared a tragedy and was on his way to deliver his play to the eponymous archon when he met Socrates, a meeting which changed his life. This observation should always remain in the background when we consider the separation of history from fiction. For example, we know the prison cell was roughly four meters by four meters, a slight tight fit for Socrates and 14 guests. Yeah, perhaps they were all there. But would they all let Simeus and Cabes do all the talking? It's certainly not likely that Antisthenes and Euclides, who were both very important in the history of philosophy, would remain silent. Let's have a, a quick look at the characters of this story. The Dramatis Personae, Phaedo. The narrator of this account of Socrates' last day was a citizen of the town of Elis, located in the northwest corner of the Peloponnesus near the town of Olympia, site of the Olympic Games. In 401, Sparta and Athens joined together in a war against Elis, and as part of their victory loot, the Athenian side took Thido as a slave. According to the Roman author Aulius Gellius, Cabes ransomed Phaedo at the insistence of Socrates. After Socrates' death, he appears to have returned to his town of Elis to es- establish a school, the Elian school. This school is said by Timon of Phlius to have had a Megarian style. That is, they developed or specialized in aristics and dialectics and argument uh, patterns. Echecrates serves as the fellow who listened to Phaedo recount the events. He lives in the town of Phlius, where Phaedo is visiting. And all that we know of him is that he was a Pythagorean. He may have heard Philolaus talk, give a talk at Thebes, a famous Pythagorean. One may ask why Plato made this choice of Echecrates as an auditor instead of Plato himself. It is, as it is generally assumed that Plato, in fact, heard the account from Phaedo. I think there are at least two reasons here. One, Plato as auditor would make the writing too self-referential. Plato always distances himself from the drama. Second, Echocrates draws our attention to the underlying 
Pythagorean themes which will gradually unfold. Sirius and Cebes. These two Thebans are the only interlocutors of Socrates in the Phaedo. In the Crito, Simeus and Cebes came to Athens with enough money to bribe whomever necessary to secure Socrates' freedom. Of the two, Cebes raises the most critical objections to Socrates' arguments and presses him to make his best case. As with Echocrates, the Pythagorean connection is indicated because Simeus and Cebes studied under Philolaus in Thebes. Of the characters which are listed as present in the jail cell, Crito and Apollodorus, although they say nothing here, are notable. Crito, you've already met, a wealthy Athenian who cared for Socrates and looked after his needs. Diogenes Laertius says that he was especially caring and affectionate. Apollodorus is the narrator of the symposium. At 173d, he is supposed to be recounting the events of the symposium that was held some twenty years earlier in honor of the tragic poet Agathon. He mentions that he has been a close associate of Socrates for the last three years. Xenophon twice confirms this close friendship between them. The rest of the group, not terribly important. There are some connections with Megarian schools and uh, Antisthenes, uh, founder of the Cynic school. So, let's move on to the commentary. The opening discussions, which run from 57a1 to 69e5, lay some important groundwork for the more specific and detailed arguments which form the heart of the dialogue. In particular, I wish to examine his notions of suicide, death, and the soul, but there are minor points of interest as well. When the dialogue turns to the prison cell, setting, we find Cabes interrupting Socrates, musing on the paradoxical union of pain and pleasure. At 60, B. 2-4, Socrates says, What a strange thing that which men call pleasure seems to be, and how astonishing the relation it has with what is thought to be its opposite, namely pain. A man cannot have both at the same time. Did you notice the words of Phaedo just one page earlier? At 59, A. 4, he says, but I had a strange feeling, an unaccustomed mixture of pain and pleasure at the same time. There's a glaring contradiction here. Did you notice it? What's the point of it? Cabes then asks about the poetry Socrates has been writing, his versification of Aesop's fables into a hymn to Apollo. Socrates was inspired to poetry by certain dreams which said the same thing. Socrates, practice and cultivate the arts, literally do music. In his response, Socrates reveals, first of all, his piety. It, is, it also indicates, again, the pervasive influence of the god Apollo on him. If you happen to be interested in the, the Greek conception of dreams, see chapter 4 of E.R. Dodd's The Greeks and the Irrational. Suffice it to say that Socrates understood the message to do music was an often repeated direct command from Apollo. I should also point out that music for the Greeks, embraced a wide range of activities, essentially any activity covered by a muse. For example, tragedy, comedy, lyric poetry, history, epic poetry, dance, sacred songs, astronomy, and flute playing. In short, music encompasses culture and learning, and Socrates was perhaps not incorrect in assuming philosophy to be his music. But to hedge his bets, to do whatever the god might be indicating, he attempts what we call poetry. 
Socrates' parting comment from this digression into poetry also leads us closer to the themes of the dialogue. He says to Cebes, Tell this to Evanios, wish him well and bid him farewell, and tell him, if he's wise, to follow me as soon as possible. That's at 61b5. The odd position that everyone who partakes worthily of philosophy should be willing to die, although not be so eager as to expedite the process, is met with surprise by Cebes and Simeus. Their surprise is perhaps largely directed to the suggestion that it is never right to kill oneself. This is the point of what Socrates says. Perhaps it will seem a matter of wonder if you th to you if this subject alone of all things is simple, and it never happens as other things do sometimes, and for some people, that it is better for a man to be dead than alive. How can this, this claim be justified? Socrates is a bit like a, a philosophical Surt's breath mint, offers two, two answers in one. We are in a kind of prison, and must not escape from it, and the gods are our guardians. We are their possessions. The notion of the body as a prison is an Orphic doctrine. Plato relates in Cratylus that the Orphics maintained that our souls are imprisoned in our bodies until they pay the penalty they owe. This religious imagery is important to the sense of his argument. Suicide is morally wrong, unholy even, and it is wrong apart from any legal considerations. Without seeing the significance of this Orphic imagery, you may be tempted to think of the credo here and suggest that suicide is wrong because it violates the law. While this is an argument that Aristotle will develop in his Nicomachean Ethics, it is not applicable here in the Phaedo. The second point, that the gods are our guardians and that we are their possessions, introduces a very important modification to his claim about suicide. Imagine a master-slave relationship. If the slave kills himself out of his own accord, the master would be upset at his loss of chattel or, or property. The master would be harmed. This is the relevant point here. But consider the case where the master orders the slave to kill himself. Is the slave's suicide wrong? So the prohibition against suicide is not categorical or absolute. Suicide is permitted when the God commands it, i.e. when God sends some necessity such as the one before us now. He says at 62c7. Note that Socrates considers his impending doom as suicide, but don't make too much out of this point, though. This is the very reason why the state administered hemlock. You drank it, you killed yourself, the state had no pollution which results from taking a life. Between 63e8 and 69e5, Socrates makes a defense of the claim that the one aim of those who practice philosophy in the proper manner is to practice for dying and death. It leads him to consider the nature of death and the nature of the soul, or psyche. The latter concept is central to the whole dialogue and needs to be examined very closely. At 63, C2, Socrates raises the question, do we believe that there is such a thing as death? He answers with this rhetorical question, is it anything else than the separation of the soul from the body? Do we believe that death is this, namely, that the body comes to be separated by itself apart from the soul, and the soul comes to be separated by itself apart from the body? Is death anything else than that? No, that is what it is. You might want to consider whether or not this understanding of death constitutes a prejudgment of the issue. David Gallup argues that such. If being dead includes the soul existing apart by itself, 
and we agree there is such a thing as death, then the soul's existence, apart from the body, seems to follow necessarily. Hackforth, on the other hand, suggests that this conception of death was common itself, and at least does not prejudge the soul's survival. All that Socrates here wants is an admission that we can properly think and speak of the soul apart from the body. Whether the soul continues to exist when thus apart is a different question. I think this would be an appropriate time to pause and consider the various ideas of soul, or psyche, which were present into the minds of the Greeks. First of all, although I perhaps need not caution this, I do want to stress the importance of distancing our concept of the soul from that which the Greeks intended by their term psyche. The oldest meaning of psyche is life force, a principle of life, an animating agent. We make a distinction between animate and inanimate objects, just as the Greeks did. But the question is, on what grounds do we make this distinction? For the Greeks, the inanimate moves. Life is self-directed motion. The agent which is responsible for this initiation of motion is the psyche. To be alive is to possess a psyche. This is the notion of psyche which allows Simeus to agree that death is the separation of the psyche from the body. This is the notion of psyche which allows Thales to say that a magnet has psyche. It, it moves itself. This is also the notion of psyche which Aristotle will develop in De Anima. The psyche is also the rational self which stands in opposition to passions and appetites. These passions and appetites are not aspects or part of the soul, an idea which arises later. Rather, these are strictly physical in origin. For example, anger rises up in the thumos in the chest. This notion of psyche, seen in Phaedo 94 and following. This notion of psyche, too, is pervasive in Greek culture, especially in the 5th century. The psyche could be the faculty or reason or intellect. It is that which learns, acquires knowledge, truth, and wisdom. It can see truth as an eye sees a sensible object. In Sophocles' play The Electra, around line 900, Chrysothemis describes her experience at the grave of her father. She and Electra pray for the return of their brother Orestes to avenge the death of, of their father. They say, quote, At the top of the pyre there was a lock of hair, as soon as I saw that, something struck my psyche at the familiar sight. Or, in Sophocles' Antigone, at line 222, a guard contemplates choices in his psyche. In Philoctetes, line 55, Odysseus wants to lead astray a man's psyche, that is, cloud his reason. In Euripides' Trojan Women, line 1171, the psyche learns. In his play The Orestes, at 1180, the psyche possesses understanding. Look for these meanings, especially here in the Phaedo at uh, page uh, 65 and following and, and 76 following. Finally, there is a meaning of the, the origin of which many people attribute to Plato or Socrates. The psyche is our true self. At the end of the Phaedo, Socrates distinguishes himself from his body. He says, and laughing quietly, 
Looking at us, he said, I do not convince Crito here that I am this Socrates talking to you here and ordering all that I say. He thinks that I am this thing, which he will soon be looking at as a corpse. And so he asks how he shall bury me. For know you well, my dear Crito, that to express yourself badly is not only faulty as far as the language go, but it does some harm to the soul too. The notion of psuche as a personal soul or a true self is very important to keep in mind. It pervades much of Plato's thought, and I suspect it is the great legacy of Socrates. The maxim of Apollo, know thyself, reaches the essence of Socrates' life. It is the notion of psuche as true self which inspires Platonic asceticism, the purification of the soul and its subsequent release from the body. Yet, ironically, this true self, this personal soul, which Socrates argues survives death, the soul which really has significance for a theory of immortality, sits uneasily with the very kind of psuche, which Plato here argues is immortal, the rational self only, void of memories and emotions. In part two, I will return to the theory of the soul, but I'll take a closer look at the role of form.